have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn once again to the book of Romans. Hopefully you received one of those copies, if you wanted one, of the ESV journals. We have more. So last week, I sent our brother Bill Gandhi to get one, and there wasn't one. But there's more this week, so if you'd like one, you're free to get up. <laughs> so Joe, you going to get one, or you already have one? If you'd have one, there's plenty back there. Go help yourself. That's the reason for this public service announcement. If you have your copy of the scriptures, I want you to invite you to, again to the book of Romans. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 939. Hope you can follow along in the scriptures. Whenever you receive a letter, and the way we usually receive letters today is through email, generally speaking, you look at that subject line right away, right? You want to find out who wrote you the letter and what it's about. Now, the way letters were written in the first century, their ancient tradition was quite different than ours. We generally put the writer of the letter at the end, don't we? And we put who we're writing it to at the beginning. It's different here. And this is a very traditional opening to a first century letter. So Paul starts with Paul. He's the one writing, and you have to get to verse 7 to see who he's writing to, to those who are in Rome. Whenever you get a long letter, I don't know if you feel this way, but if I get an email and I see who it's from, I want to find out who it's from first, and then I, I can look at the size of the email, and sometimes that can cause you to have a little bit of a heart palpitation, because if it's a really long one, sometimes you're automatically thinking, oh no, it's going to be something heavy. This is a long letter, and I'm assuming that they were wondering, okay, we've never met the Apostle Paul, we've heard about him. But this is quite lengthy. What is it about? Why would he write 16 chapters to us and to our church? It's a very good question. Now, we have the value of our emails having a subject line, which generally will give us a little tip, if they're kind, about the contents of the note. We don't have that subject line in this letter, but in this intro, which is verse 1 to 17 that Phil read earlier, contains the introduction to this letter and this morning as we conclude the first paragraph of that intro I believe the theme of the letter is revealed to us even principally what was going on in Rome now Paul had never visited there he was writing from Corinthians from Corinth and he was writing this letter and he wanted to visit them he wanted to go to Jerusalem to take an offering to the poor saints and he also wanted to visit Spain so he mentions that in his letter he talks to them about how he had wanted to come before and he was forbidden to be able to come. But now he's speaking to them and we can miss this if we're not careful. Notice the first word of the first verse. What is it? What is it? One more time. That's correct. What are the first two words of verse 7? What is it? What is it? Okay, so let's do them both. Paul to all. Say it again. Paul to all. Kind of rhymes. It's easy to remember. But this all is key. The all happens to be those that are in where? Rome. Now, we miss this sometimes because we are in church perhaps a lot. We hear a lot from the Bible. And we forget that the chasm between these two groups of people, huge. Paul's a Jew. The Romans are Gentiles. And he says, Paul, to all, including those of you in Rome. 
what happened to this vast yawning chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles? Why are they getting along? I mean, in this passage that Phil read, and I want you to see it again, he's going to refer to Gentiles as people who belong to Christ, who are beloved by God, and are called saints. No Jew would ever speak of Gentiles that way. Something's happened amazingly. And it really helps us with understanding the theme of the letter. Now, when you read commentaries, if you do that kind of thing, and I would encourage you to do that, and we may need to recommend some of the best commentaries that we think there are for this book, but every commentary is going to have an introduction section, and in that introduction, they're going to talk about the timing of the letter, but they're also going to have a section on what was the theme, what was the message of the book. I mentioned to you last week that there is no letter in our New Testament that so thoroughly explains the gospel like Romans. Remember, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This displays for us the facts of the person and work of Jesus. I reminded the first service, I want to remind us all again, that we need to be careful not to act as if God didn't give us a whole Bible. The southern preachers say we have a Bible and it's from cover to cover, including the maps. I don't know about the maps, but we do have a Bible, and it's 66 books. It includes all the revelation that God believes that we need for life and godliness. Sometimes, and especially today, there are those that will preach almost primarily from the Gospels, and they use it as a launching pad to say whatever they want to say, as if God didn't give us further revelation about these things. And we need to be very careful. The book of Romans, right after the only history book in the New Testament, is the book of Acts. And that book tells us what the people of God did with the facts about the person and work of Jesus Christ revealed to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Are you tracking with me? So when we come to this first letter, the placement of these books are on purpose. And what we need first is an ex explanation of the gospel, and that's what we have in the book of Romans. So many commentators, when they're describing what is the book about, what is the letter about, what's the subject line, they'll say it's about the gospel. True. It's about the solas from the Reformation. It's in Christ alone. It is through faith alone. It's by grace alone. It's for God's glory alone. Yes, this is what we see in the book of Romans. But that is part of the theme, but there is an occasion for the letter, and Whenever you're studying the scriptures, these are real people. They're not like make-believe people. These are real people in real churches that have real problems, like us. So there always is an occasion for the email. <laughs> There's always an occasion for the letter. And so we want to ask this question at the beginning of our study of the Romans, what was the occasion? Well, the occasion becomes quite clear. If you've been reading through the book of Romans in your devotions, which I hope that you have, you will notice that there is an underlying tension between two groups of people in this church. It is the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, praise God, they're both believers. But they brought into the church, and this congregation is a majority Gentile congregation. They're mostly Greek Romans, okay? They're mostly Gentiles, but there are some Jewish believers that have been through the dispersion that are part of this church. They come to faith in Christ. But they're majority Gentiles. Particularly when you get to chapter 14 and 15, you notice this tension is rising about the weak brother who's worried about eating certain things and not eating certain things or drinking certain things or not drinking certain things. Remember that? Shake your head if you remember that. That's there, okay? 
you're going to notice that this tension's coming up. And so really the mega theme or the occasion for the letter is this, that the only loyalty, only loyalty to the gospel will bring unity in the church. So why do you need 16 chapters of gospel? Why do you need 16 chapters of explanations of the good news of Jesus Christ? Because only loyalty to the gospel will bring unity in the church. Now, there is a lot of talk about unity today and division and how we can go about eradicating such division. The challenge is many people are ignoring what 16 chapters really reveal to us that only loyalty to the gospel can bring unity to the church. And I want you to know at the outset that the division between the Gentiles and the Jews is unlike anything we know of today. You say, well, we know it's a big division. You don't know of anything like the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And I hope before we're finished this morning, you will acknowledge that we don't know anything like this division. With that said, this is the subject. This is the subject line. If we had an email and it was called From Paul to EBBC, it would have as its subject line, The Gospel's Power in Reconciling Human Relationships. That's the big mega theme of the book of Romans. Now, it's the most thorough explanation of the gospel that we have, yes? But the mega theme is that it is the only loyalty that will help us reconcile the tensions, the hostilities of human relationships. I think it was 2014 that Becky and I got the opportunity to go to the island of Guam. Was it 14? I think so. It was one of those years. We got this privilege to go there for a conference, and while we were on the island... A couple of Becky's sisters were there and a couple of my brother-in-laws. And we were able to take a tour of the island on a couple of days. It was beautiful, as most islands are. But I remember on one occasion, we were stopped. The pastor stopped and he said, this is the area. And he showed us some forest. He said, this is the area where Sochi Yokoi came out in 1972. Of course, I didn't know who Sochi Yokoi was, but he told me that Sochi Yokoi was a sergeant in the Imperial Japanese Army. And it wasn't until 1972, he was an Imperial Japanese Army sergeant in World War II. And it wasn't until 1972 that he was brought out of the jungle there or the forest in Guam, and it was, his discovery was kind of happenstance. There were two Chamorans or natives from Guam that were checking their shrimp traps and they noticed this Japanese older man in the woods or the forestry, the outlies of the forest, and they confronted him and he began to attack them, thinking that he was attacking the enemy. They subdued him, brought him to their commission, got a translator to try to tell him, the war's been over for 28 years. We're not your enemies anymore. There's no more hostility. You're fighting a battle that's been over for 28 years. When I hear and thought about the story, even when he told it to us, these gospel narratives started just running through my brain. Having already been a pastor for some 15, 16 years at the time, or maybe longer, I remember thinking, this is similar to the church. <laughs> the squabbles and the fighting and the hostility that still goes on amongst people groups is as if they don't realize that the hostility has already been taken care of. 
It happened on Golgotha. It happened at the cross. The hostility between us and God, all of the wrath was dealt with forever. But that wonderful reconciliation, as we see in the scriptures, is not just vertical. It's horizontal. And this whole passage, the whole book of Romans, is going to give us a full dose of gospel. But for a reason. Because the occasion was, there was tension in the church. There was division. So, so here's the theme I want to give you again. And you've got it on your handout. If you have a handout, only loyalty to the gospel will secure unity in the church. Only loyalty to the gospel can secure unity in the church. Now, I want to visit a couple of topics here. But I'm going to move really quickly on the first two, I promise you. Because where I really believe our theme is going to be clearest is in the last point. But you may recall last week we talked about the origin of the gospel. Whose gospel is it? God's gospel. Do you remember that from last week? Please shake your head. Yes, we did talk about that. It's God's gospel. It's his gospel. We talked about not only the origin of the gospel, but the promise of the gospel. That the entirety of the Old Testament, all of this was predicted, right? So the Old Testament, we don't need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament, do we? A good no. No, okay? Uh, the Old Testament was predicting our Messiah, that he would take away, bear away the sins of the world. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He said it was all promised beforehand. And then we looked at the person of the gospel, and that's Jesus Christ. We saw that he is human. He's of the son of David. He was of the flesh of David. He is the son of God. And that was declared horizoned when? You remember? What, what horizoned? him as the son of God. He's always been the son of God. It didn't make him the son of God, but something happened, an event in the life of Jesus Christ that horizon forever that he is deity. His resurrection, right? Do you see it there? His resurrection from the dead. Do you notice it in verse number four? The spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And I reminded you last week that that dead is plural. So if you can imagine... All the billions of people in the earth right now are in the sea. Their ashes have been spread. He was the first fruits to rise from all of the dead. And all the believing dead will follow. He's the first fruits. And he's declared the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to verse 5. Through whom? Who's the whom? What's the antecedent to this pronoun? Come on, English class. Jesus Christ, right? Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, there are those commentators that will say, what about the we? Is that like a royal we? Is that an editor's we? I mean, who's the we? Who's he talking about? Well, I don't believe it's either. I believe it hints to the very theme of the book. Remind you, what's the first word of verse 1? What's the first two words of verse 7? Paul to all. We. We have received grace. We've all received grace. It's all of grace. Now, when you think of the word grace, there are a lot of people that will give different definitions. And so this is the first point. The purpose of the gospel was that everyone would receive the grace to bring about the obedience of faith. And Paul is saying this wonderful position, only 13 official apostles listed for us in the New Testament. They had this special office in the foundation of the church. Paul said, I was one of them. But I received that position by grace. It wasn't because I was anything better than you. It was all of grace. When you think of grace, what do you think of? 
Some people, if you surveyed them, they would say, I think of a figure skater, or perhaps they think of ballet, or they think of somebody who has very good social skills, and they're very graceful, and they're hospitable. Or perhaps they think of saying prayer right before a meal. But believers realize that, that actually when we talk about grace, we're just saying this is God's disposition toward his people. He just smiles on them and gives them favor, undeserved favor and kindness and gifts. That's our God. It's all of grace. And Paul says, my position as an apostle was by grace. And then you'll notice at the end of verse 7, he says the same grace is yours. So he doesn't have like the, the apostles and then the lowly laity. He's saying it's all of us have received the same grace. Now, remember, grace is used a variety of ways in our New Testament. Not just to refer to undeserved kindness. And I do like the acrostic of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a wonderful way to remember what grace is. If you didn't get that, grace, acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. But there's also the grace of empowerment or enablement. Remember in 2 Corinthians where Paul says that God's grace gives us sufficiency for all things? So there is a, an extending of God's grace to give us strength to do what he's called us to do. And Paul says, this apostleship thing I could not do on my own. Just like you couldn't live the Christian life on your own, it's all of grace. I want you to see the, the, how he makes all things equal here. And he says it was all to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, do you see that in your text? I was given this grace, you were given this grace, we were given this grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, I just want to tell you this because I think it's helpful. Some people have taken that phrase and said he's talking about two things here. He's talking about salvation by grace alone, and then he's talking about service, that God also gives us the grace to do and to minister to God's people, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, that he gives us this varied mercy very grace that we're able to serve one another either through speaking gifts or serving gifts i think there's something to say about that he's simply saying romans all of us were saved by grace jews and gentiles and all of us are serving by grace jews and gentiles and all of us had the same saving purpose what's the same saving purpose to bring about the obedience of faith you see that phrase now please put your thinking hats on for just a minute the phrase, bring about the obedience of faith, has had a lot of ink spilt on it by people trying to define what exactly is he saying here. And one thing we can dismiss out of hand is that he is saying that the way you have faith is by working for it. Okay? Right? Can all of us say we can dismiss that? Why can we dismiss that one? Because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace are you saved, not according to your works, lest anybody should boast and be proud. Okay? So, so we know that he's not saying... The way you earn your faith or get your faith is by doing something. So out of hand, we can say that's not one of them. Some people would say, though, what he's saying here is that obedience and faith are the same thing. So that by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you're also obeying the gospel by submitting to the gospel. I don't know that I, 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 I appreciate that view because it sounds like that the Holy Spirit is using two different words that he uses two different ways throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, and he just combined them as synonyms here. The Holy Spirit never uses words unnecessarily, yes? They're all specifically inspired and for our edification. The other view is that he's saying that when you have this faith, it's always going to end up in obedience. 
So, so by trusting in Christ alone and his grace alone and being born again, that that's going to always lead to a changed life. So we should expect that when faith is exercised in the gospel, that it will be obedience. Maybe I could use the phrase like this. You know there's a few ways to use that little word of, yes? So one way I could say, I could say acts of courage. Did you see what I just did? The acts are coming from the what? Okay, come on, stay with me. Acts of courage. Where are the acts coming from? Courage. If I said block of wood, what am I saying? The block and the wood are the what? Same thing, right? So I don't believe that's what it's saying. I don't think it's, you know, faith of obedience. I, I think what he's saying here is faith of obedience or obedience of faith. So, so there's an obedience that is ushered out of faith. So here's the question to ask yourself. Have you seen that kind of obedience in your life? This is not true just of Jews. This is not true just of Gentiles. He's saying all of us, whenever you exercise faith in the grace, the free grace of the gospel, it will change your life. There will be obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We mentioned it last week. If any person is in Christ, they are what? New creature. Somebody say, are you preaching lordship salvation? I'm just preaching the scriptures, folks. That's what I'm preaching. I think it's a fair question for all of us to ask, have we seen a change in our life that says faith has been exercised in the free grace of the gospel and therefore it has transformed me into being more obedient? And we're talking progressive here, folks. Please don't say, well, does that mean perfection? No, we're not talking about an eradication of your sin nature. We're saying about a changed life. Obedience of faith. And he's saying this is true for both Jews and Gentiles. This is the answer to those who argue that it's possible to accept Jesus Christ as Savior without surrendering to him as Lord. Those are, uh, that's a false dichotomy. This obedience of faith is saying that the true saving faith will change our lives. So hear me clearly. We are not saying that you need to work for your salvation. For by grace you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God. God in his free grace and his loving mercy has given his son as a sacrifice for your sins. After he died and said to Telestai it is finished, he rose from the dead and now he's at the right hand of the Father and Romans chapter 10 says this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? So I want to express this to you again. Sometimes we get foggy on this because we come to church too often. No, not too often. We come to church so often that we can get foggy on this. We don't come to church too often. Scratch that from the tape, okay? We do, <laughs> we do, don't leave, Joe. That was a mistake. We do not come to church too often. Sit down. We come to church so often, we can get foggy on this, can't we? That we start thinking that salvation doesn't require a person to exercise personal repentance and faith in Christ. We hear a lot today about following Jesus, and I think one of the challenges with that terminology is it sounds like if you just start imitating what you think Christ would do, then you are a disciple, you're a Christian. No, the Bible says except you be born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not saying that you have to have a date written in the flyleaf of your Bible. I do. But that's not how you know that you've been born again. 1 John says that there's going to be signs of new life. There's going to be this obedience that flows from saving faith. So I want to encourage you, if you look at your life and you say there's never been any obedience that flows from that profession, I want to press you to say, have you ever fully relied on the sacrificial death 
the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, call on him today. Call on him as Lord and he will rescue you. This is true for both what? Jews and Gentiles. So what's the first word of verse 1? What's the first two words of verse 7? Only loyalty to the gospel can secure unity in the church. Second point here is the motive of the gospel. He says it's for the sake of his what? For the sake of his name. Do you see this here? He says to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of whose name? Jesus among all the nations. I just want to quickly make this point. He's saying that the purpose of sharing the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles was not to build bigger groups of Jews or bigger groups of Gentiles. If I could use something that's a little bit crass, I don't mean it to be crass, it might sound very respectful is what I'm trying to say, is to say we're no longer on two separate teams. We're all under the name of Christ. What he's saying here is the, the whole motive of gospel mission, of sharing the gospel, is not just sharing the gospel. I think sometimes when we share the Great Commission at the end of our services, like we have been the last couple months, we might be prone to think, well, we need to, need to share the gospel because we need to share the gospel. Well, that's true. But can there be a greater motive for sharing the gospel than just we're supposed to do it? Paul says, actually, it's the same thing you find in 3 John. The missionaries in 3 John said the reason why they went around risking their lives to share the gospel was for the fame of his name. And their motive was, we want to make famous the name of Jesus, the Lord, all over the world. And our goal is not to win somebody to our team or to our club. You know, some evangelism, if we're not careful, is ambition. It's ambition to honor perhaps even our organization, our church, add people to our belt, our gospel belt of there's another one that I led to Jesus. Rather than saying, no, we do this because of the fame of the name of our Christ. And we look forward to the day when every tongue and tribe and nation and kindred will gather around the throne together and worship. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And he said, it's the fame of the name. This is the motivation. Do you see the overlap here? He, he's saying that this is the same for all the what? That word nations, we get our English word ethnicities. This is really important. A lot of discussion going on about these kinds of divisions today in our world. And I want to finish with the scope of the gospel. But before I do, I, I want to say this. He's saying, listen, this same gospel is for all ethnicities, Jews, Gentiles. Those were the two junk drawers. And we're going to spread the same gospel for the sake of whose name? The name of Christ. If you ever wanted to get a autobiography of the Apostle Paul, the closest you're going to find, I know I've shared this with you before, is the book of 2 Corinthians. We don't, that's not an autobiography, but it's the closest thing you'll get to an autobiography of what made the Apostle Paul tick. If you ever wondered, what made this guy tick? Go to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, he's going to reveal some of that, and he says it this way. He says, the love of Christ constrains me, because I thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but unto him who died for them and rose again. Now, I want you to see, Paul has already called himself a slave of Jesus, but he says the same thing at the end of verse 6. Look at this. He says this about the Gentiles. Please don't miss this. Who are called to what? Belong to who? 
You still seeing it in your scriptures? So he's saying, listen, what constrains us to be gospel chatterers and gospel spreaders is we belong to Jesus, and we have made this verdict. Remember in 1994, our, my Baptist history teacher, of all people, brought in a little television, a little black and white television. He had the, the rabbit ears. He put some tinfoil on the top of it for us to hear the verdict on the O.J. Simpson case. Seriously, he brought it into the Baptist history class. It's one of the things that will never leave me from that Baptist history class, ever. And I remember you know, hearing the verdict and going, no way. <laughs> Maybe you had a similar response if you were alive then or if you watched it. But, but they had a lot of deliberation, okay? My, my point is, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he, he deliberated on all these facts, that if one died for all, then all were dead. So he made this verdict. If that's true, if the gospel's really true, that the son of David, God's son, died for my sins, rose for me, I can't live for Paul anymore. And Gentiles in Rome, you can't live for yourself anymore. That old life is gone. Now you are the slave and the servant of a new master. And it's for the sake of his name. This is the motive of gospel living. And what it does is it takes ethnicities and it flattens them because we're all on the same equilibrium here. We're all on the same level. It flattens it. He says, Paul, an apostle, and all those in Rome, here's what we do. We belong to Jesus. So here it is again. Only loyalty to the gospel can secure unity in the church. And I want to finish with the scope of the gospel. He says, among all nations, among all ethnicities, including you who are in Rome. Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, if you're taking notes here, there are three things he's going to say about Gentiles. But before I tell you those three things, I want to paint a picture for you that really needs to be painted. Here's what needs to be painted. We too often, as those who attend church often, not too much, we, we forget about this huge gap, this yawning chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles. Hear me out. There was a racial fence that divided Jews and Gentiles. Jews saw themselves as a race, not just as a nation. Now, they weren't, but they saw themselves that way. Remember how all this happened. Abraham was chosen out of all the same people that had the same bloodline. He didn't have a different color skin. He didn't have different color hair. The only thing that made him different, he was circumcised and he was a Jew. That's what happened, right? So what we have here is we have this racial fence because they began to view themselves as a nation and they lumped everyone else. Now, God was the one that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. He made this division. It was divine. But they began to view all of the Gentiles as dogs. That was not complimentary in first century. They were fit only, according to the Jews and their writings, to fuel the fires of Gehenna. That's how they viewed most of us here this morning as Gentiles. Jews wouldn't eat food prepared by Gentile hands, let alone eat with them. There was no conversation Gentiles could have, you could have with Gentiles if you were a Jew preceding a religious ceremony. So this big racial fence was between Jews and Gentiles. It continues. There was a religious fence. The Jews, of course, were monotheists. Our God is how many gods? One God, one Lord. But the Gentiles were polytheists. They had many gods. And there are overtones of that polytheism that are still in our culture as Americans. For instance, the name of our months 
all come back to the polytheism of the Romans and the Greeks. For instance, January, we have one day left this day, but it was named after Janus, a two-faced god that had doors of its temple open during times of war and closed during times of peace. February was named after an ancient fertility god called Februa. One of the reasons why you have Valentine's Day during February. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to celebrate Valentine's Day, but some of you men are saying, I'm out of it. No, you're not. No, you're not. March, after the Roman god Mars. It was a, a war a god, and the priests would dance in the temple of the March god, or the god of Mars, with their full defense or army, military armor on. Our May is named after the god Zeus. And this one I find very fascinating. June was after Juno, the god of women and marriage. And it was thought that at the end of the month of June was the best time for somebody to get married. And I find that fascinating because I've done a lot of weddings in pastoral ministry, and many of them are towards the end of June. Still the most popular month. They worship Neptune, Jupiter, Venus, whole host of other gods. So, so they were not just separated racially, they were separated religiously. I mean, those are the pagans. They worship the sun, moon, and stars. We worship the one true God. There was also a moral separation. The Gentiles were known as lewd and licentious. There are still surviving artifacts of their embroidery, and it's pornographic. I certainly don't encourage you to find it, but trust me, it's pornographic. It describes what would happen at the pools, and there were some four million people, according to historians, that lived in Rome proper. It was referred to by the rest of the empire as the sewer of the empire. It attracted all kinds of licentiousness, and then you have, what's the first word of verse 1? Paul. What's his name? He used to be Saul, he was a Pharisee, he tried to keep all 613 of the commandments of the Old Testament, and so did all the other Jews. I mean, so they were the moral ones, and the Romans and the Gentiles were the unclean ones. I want to finish, they were separated geographically too, that's an obvious one, but sometimes we forget the geographics and the distance because things are so easily, you can so easily go to long distances by our transportation, but... It would be like going from here to London or here to some places in Africa for you to get from Rome to Israel or to Jerusalem. And they didn't have transportation. So they were separated. All that in mind, you got that picture now? Okay, they're separated racially, they're separated religiously, they're separated morally, they're separated geographically. What's the first word of verse 1? What's the first two words of verse 7? Here's what he's going to say about them. Three things, look at them. End of verse 6, he calls these people, the dogs, you belong to who? He calls them the ones who are loved by who? And then he finally calls them what? Saints. Now, I don't like to do this often because I don't want you to ever lose confidence in your scriptures. But our King James Version helps us here where ESV doesn't really. The King James Version will often take words that are not in the original and they'll be in italics. And it helps you know that those were not original. They were put in there because the translators thought that it smoothed it out. The words to be are not in the original. So, so really what it says here in more of a literal translation is, you're called saints. Now again, keep in mind, the Gentiles, most of us. They were the ones that were polytheists, 
They were immoral. They were irreligious in the orthodox sense of the term. And now they're called belonging to Jesus. They're called beloved by God and saints. That should be a jaw dropper. How did this happen? How, how did this group of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, now they're saying, you belong to God, we belong to God. You're beloved by God, we're beloved by God. And you're saints and we're saints too. Do you realize that the only other time, and all of, actually all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this phrase, beloved of God, was exclusively used of one person. Who was it? Jesus. Where we hear... This is my beloved son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. And here we have the Gentiles being called the people of God's good favor and objects of his love. What happened? What took place that they're now the beloved of God and they're saints? I mean, sometimes we can think of the Roman Catholic misunderstanding that after you've died, if they can discover one or two miracles, then you can receive sainthood. No. Paul's saying... I got nothing on you guys. Sometimes you'll have a translation of the Bible that says, from the Saint Paul. Well, Paul's no more saintly than you if you're in Christ. In fact, this is one of Paul's favorite words for Christians. They're saints. They're saints because they're in Jesus. I want to bring this to a close, and I want to ask you to turn to two other quick passages of Scripture. Turn to one quickly first. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. And then I want us to finish with Ephesians 2. This one is found on page 984 in your pew Bibles. But turn over to Colossians 3, verse 11, real quickly. And I want you to hear the word of God about this vast chasm between Jews and Gentiles and even other divisions. Look at verse 11. Here, that's in the gospel, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But can you read that last phrase with me? But Christ is all and in all. What he's saying is the only, only loyalty to the gospel can bring unity to the church. And he's reminding them that these divisions between Jews and Gentiles that's going to come up throughout the book, the only solution to these divisions is a huge dose of the gospel. I want to finish with this passage. I promise this is where we'll finish. Turn to Ephesians 2, page 976 in your pew Bibles. Ephesians 2. Now, again, I want you to bring to this lesson in the scriptures, I don't want you to... I don't want you to, to to depart, compartmentalize the world we live in now with what we're seeing in the scriptures. I, I want those to be blended, right? That, that's really the only way biblical preaching is going to help us and edify us, okay? So, so don't just talk about, okay, that was a Bible lesson, and, I, and then I can talk about the world we live in. Because we live in a world right now that is busy about divisions and busy about talking about those divisions and seeking solutions, many artificial solutions. Many identity solutions. Frankly, scary solutions. This is the only true solution. And I want you to see it because no division that we presently have in our country or in our world comes close to the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
I want you to see this. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, in the flesh, call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the what? The commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We were desperate in need as Gentiles. But now, in who? In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember the illustration I gave you about the guy in Guam? The hostility, right? What's he referring to here? Well, in this passage, he's referring to the holy place. He's referring to the temple. He's referring to the tabernacle. Now, when the temple was built, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, there were divisions, right? You had the holy of holies could only be entered once a year by the high priest, and that was by lot. You had the holy place where the Levites and priests would serve. Then you had the court of men. These were Jewish men, the court of Jewish women, and then you had the Gentiles. So when he says far off, we were far off. You're like, what's going on up there? That's how far off we were. And you couldn't get there because you were a what? A Gentile. And he's saying in Christ, those walls that divided all of those different groups have been what? Demolished. And now, we could say, you get to go to the front of the line, but that's not accurate. There is no line. We all, as one new man, do you see that? He, he's using a play on word here, but I think it could be properly said, one new nation. So there's no longer Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer Greeks. There's no longer servants and freemen. There's no, no longer divisions like that. There's just one new nation, one new man, one new body, and we get to come with unashamed face into the very presence of the holy place. That's what he's teaching. And if Hebrews 4 says, you can come anytime you want. Come confidently by the blood of Christ. There's no more this group versus this group. It was all demolished in Christ. Folks, here it is. And he continues. He doesn't just say the wall's broken down. He says something surprising. He says, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the what? How do we create, kill the hostility? Is it by, you know, trying to, you know, work through, you know, how do you feel? How do you feel? Can we look back at history? Do we need to continue to highlight our divisions in this class and that class? Is that the answer? Is that the answer? No, no, the gospel is the answer. Only loyalty to the gospel will bring unity to the church. And that's why he takes 16 chapters to give them all of this gospel. And he continues in this passage and he says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the who? This is really key, and I'm done. I promise. He didn't say, we're now fellow citizens with Israel. 
he didn't say the Gentiles made up for it, and now they got to join the Jewish group. He said, no, both of you have been brought near. The Gentiles and the Jews were just as far off. That's what they didn't realize. They were just as far off as the Gentiles, but God brought them together in Christ. So how do we live this? Gospel believers, we need to chatter the gospel, spread the gospel, because we understand that only loyalty to this good news, it's the only thing that can bring the disparities together. It's the only thing that can heal the divisions, because we're one in Christ. That is the mega theme of the book of Romans. And you see it bubble up throughout our study of it, that there is this this tension between these two groups of people. So some of you ask, Pastor, are you just saying that preach the gospel and that's all we need to be concerned about? Sort of. I am saying to you that we have too low a view of the gospel, I believe, today. You hear some Christians even say, yeah, 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 but (laughs) here's what I like to talk about. I mean, this, this theory and these people, I mean, they have this degree, they have, you know, what, I mean, we had Jews and Gentiles, they wouldn't even eat together. I mean, their separation was much, much broader than anything we experience today. Why do we dismiss what the scriptures say so easily as though we need something else? We try to remind you around here, and I, I hope we say it more often than we do. We need to say it more often than we do, that, that the scriptures are sufficient, amen? The Bible gives us the answers that we need for the problems we face. And this book of Romans is going to equip us with much gospel to help us understand that only loyalty to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will bring true unity in the church. May we embrace it, may we live it, may we celebrate it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for bringing us near and tearing down those walls. And no longer do we have to stand out in the Gentile court just wondering what's going on. But now we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. And we ask now, Lord, as your children, that we would be gospel, graceful spokesmen for the true, only true unity that can be found. And it's in having our sins forgiven, being reconciled to you, Father, through your Son, Jesus, and then seeing that reconciliation worked out in our relationships with others. Lord, we praise you for the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and